I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to okay let me tell you why you're wrong this week we're back on to adam smith's the wealth of nations with book one chapter 11 of the rent of land just like last chapter this one is pretty massive at least as far as page count so i will be breaking it up into at least two parts maybe three if we need to going back Smith has broken the economy up in, into three basic parts, wages of labor, profits of stock, and rent of land. To Smith, these were the three main ways that people make money. And of course, he then set out to expand on each one of them in its own chapter, which brings us back to our chapter today. Uh, we're now covering in the greatest detail that over 140 pages will allow the rent of land. <clears throat> so, a lot to cover. Let's jump right in with Smith's own words. He starts the chapter off by saying, quote, Rent, considered as the price paid for the use of land, is naturally the highest which the tenant can afford to pay in the actual circumstances of the land. In adjusting the terms of the lease, the landlord endeavors to leave him no greater share of the produce than what is sufficient to keep up the stock from which he furnishes the seed, pays the labor, and purchases and maintains the cattle and other instruments of husbandry, together with the ordinary profits of farming stock in the neighborhood. This is evidently the smallest share with which the tenant can content himself without being a loser, and the landlord seldom means to leave him any more. Whatever part of the produce or what is the same thing, whatever part of its price, is over and above this share, he naturally endeavors to reserve to himself as the rent of his land, which is evidently the highest the tenant can afford to pay in the actual circumstances of the land. Sometimes, 
indeed, the liberality, more frequently the ignorance of the landlord, makes him accept of somewhat less than this portion, and sometimes too, though more rarely, the ignorance of the tenant makes him undertake to pay somewhat more, or to content himself with somewhat less than the ordinary profits of farming stock in the neighborhood. This portion, however, may still be considered as the natural rent of land, or the rent for which it natu is naturally meant that land should be the most part be let. Now, Smith carries a pretty low regard for landowners collecting rent throughout the entirety of the wealth of nations. Uh, he usually characterizes them as earning money by doing nothing, whereas laborers work for their wages and holders of stock invest with the, the chance of failure for their profits. Those who charge rent simply insist on being paid money for the use of their land. Fairness to landlords, at some point it can be assumed that they purchased the land and thus made a kind of investment in it. Also, the process of rent allows the people using the land to begin uh, their business endeavor without first having to save up enough money to purchase the land outright. So there are economic advantages to, uh, to be had from such an arrangement. I am convinced that, and, and we'll have to get someone on as a guest who, who's actually an expert in the life of Adam Smith to confirm this, but I'm convinced that at some point in his life, Smith had a bad run-in with a landlord and has allowed it to shape a, a permanent bias against the entire idea of land ownership throughout his works. But I suppose that it, it should be said that some of Smith's reservations about rent are, are well-founded. His broad overview of the issue is this. The rent of land, therefore considered as the price paid for the use of the land, is naturally a monopoly price. It is not at all proportioned to what the landlord may have laid out upon the improvement of the land, or to what he can afford to take, but to what the farmer can afford to give. And in this, Smith makes what I think is a pretty important point. Rent, and he's mainly talking about the rent of land for farming, but it, but it does have parallels across all rented land. It, rent doesn't seem to function in the same way as, as say, a, you know, uh, producing or selling commodities. If land usage were treated in the same way as everything else, there would be an assessment of supply and demand, and, and a market price for a given piece of land would be concluded based on a number of factors that might raise or lower the price. But as Smith points out, that's not really how it seems to work. The price isn't derived from the land as it is, but rather from what the land might produce. This different arrangement then goes on to affect the end price of the commodities produced from that land but does so in a very different way and, and in a very different direction than other variables that, that we've already observed. Whereas, if the wages of labor are raised, the end price of the product must be raised to absorb that increase. Rent operates in the exact opposite way, with higher prices for the commodity determining higher rent. Smith puts it this way, quote, Rent, 
it is to be observed, therefore, enters into the composition of the price of commodities in a different way from wages and profit. High or low wages and profit are the causes of high or low price. High or low rent is the effect of it. It is because high or low wages and profit must be paid in order to bring a particular commodity to market that its price is high or low. But it is because its price is high or low, a great deal more or very little more or no more than what is sufficient to pay those wages and profit that it affords a high rent or a low rent or no rent at all. And we get into the meat of the chapter here. Smith starts us off with, with this core premise, which is that the most basic way of assessing the value of land is by its ability to be used for agriculture. Now, that may seem weirdly outdated, a, a relic of thinking from the pre-industrial age. But don't forget that, that Smith was living at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And clearly he recognized that there was a, a major sea change happening based on, on his writing in all of the previous chapters we've covered so far. The way Smith squares this circle is by recognizing that despite a shift towards industrialization, food is essentially the primary driver of the economy. If you've ever studied psychology, you've probably seen Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's a, it's a pyramid with a person's most basic needs for sustaining life at the bottom, and as you work your way up, the needs become more and more focused on completeness rather than just survival. Anyway, at the base of Maslow's hierarchy are our most basic needs, and those are food, water, and shelter. At our core, the things we need just to not die are food, water, and shelter. So it would then stand to reason that the, the central pillar of our economic system, the thing that provides the base for everything else, is providing food, water, and shelter. They're the, the products that we basically have no elasticity of demand for. We need them above all others. Having an iPhone doesn't do much for you if you don't also have food. And it's by this logic that Smith places agriculture as, as the basis of all land valuation. Think of it this way. If we found ourselves on, on the island from the show Lost, and instead of getting into mystery box adventures and dealing with the Dharma organization, we decided that we're just going to have to start up a society and, and live out our lives on that island. We're going to have to start by divvying up the land into its needed uses. And the first thing that we're going to determine is how much of it needs to be set aside for growing food. Now, if the island is small and our group is large, then it's possible that we have to use 100% of the available land for growing food because our, our need for food is non-negotiable. Of course, if the island is big enough to grow sufficient food to feed everyone, then any additional unused land can then be allocated to other things. But the cultivation of food takes priority. Based on that idea, Smith tells us that all land value, and thus rent, is based on the potential to be used for agriculture. He says, quote, As men, like all other animals, naturally multiply in proportion to the means of their subsistence, food is always more or less in demand. 
it can always purchase or command a greater or smaller quantity of labor, and somebody can always be found who is willing to do something in order to obtain it. The quantity of labor, indeed, which it can purchase is not always equal to what it could maintain if managed in the most economical manner on account of the high wages which are sometimes given to labor. But it can always purchase such a quantity of labor as it can maintain, according to the rate at which that sort of labor is commonly maintained in the neighborhood. But land is, in almost any situation, produces a greater quantity of food than what is sufficient to maintain all the labor necessary for bringing it to market. In the most liberal way in which that labor is ever maintained, the surplus, too, is always more than sufficient to replace the stock which employed that labor, together with its profits. Something, therefore, always remains for a rent to the landlord. So because farmland can typically provide more food than it takes to sustain the labor that works there, food can then be brought to the market and sold to others. And so not everyone has to farm, which means that not all land has to be farmland. But if the population increased and demand for food went up, land being used for other purposes would become more valuable as farmland, and a shift would occur. This is one of those things that, that we'll see in economics a lot. In a great many cases, numbers are only valuable when they can be placed in comparison to something. So, so you need to create a grounding point as a, as a point of comparison. Yes, land can be used for any number of things in the economy. And, and in reality, we know that we've got enough land to grow food and use for industry. But when crafting a method for valuing that, we need to create a known grounding point to then see comparative value based on it. That's what Smith is doing here. It's not arbitrary. His logic holds in that food is so essential that our elasticity for everything else is based around if we have enough food available. He's just pointing out that every other use of land must be in higher demand than food for it to even happen. He then goes on to point out that since rent is tied to pro the profits of the land, then there would naturally be lower rents on more remote pieces of farmland due to the higher costs associated with getting products to market. However, this is changing in his day, because as canals and roads are built and improved, those added expenses are going down, and so the rents are going up. About 15 years ago, Thomas Friedman wrote a book about the effect that improved communication and transportation were, were having on the world, essentially making the economic playing field more level. Hence its title, The World is Flat. Well, Friedman did uh, very well with that book. It was very popular when it came out. But it can't be called an original idea because clearly Smith said it first. Now, the rest of the section of the chapter is a lot of variations on a theme. Smith does this a lot through the book, and, and I'm pretty sure you, you may have noticed by now. He states his view, then proceeds to back it up and, and offer examples and alternatives. In some of the chapters, I, I've kind of rolled them all together to avoid 
the topic becoming tedious, but, but here some of these offer interesting variations on, on the bigger theory. So I figured I'd get into most of them. The first one is that land used to grow corn yields more food per acre than land used to graze cattle. For this reason, meat is more expensive than corn. Uh, one quick note here, when Smith uses the term corn here, he's actually referring to wheat. Uh, but I guess at the time, corn was what the British were calling wheat. The reason Smith points out the different uh, yields and their different prices is because he wants to show that these two foodstuffs do not have any kind of intrinsic price, but rather that their price is based, in line with his idea of land valuation, on yield. He points out that in a pre-agrarian society, or even just a place that has never typically grown crops, meat would be cheaper than corn, because to get high yields of corn, investments of time and effort would have to be put into getting the land prepared for to sustainably grow crops, while grazing land is really just wild grass for cattle to eat. Basically, if you're a society that doesn't know the first thing about farming, your yields of food will be higher if you leave the land for cattle to graze, since all you have to do is catch the cattle. Uh, rather than trying to turn it all into farmland, where you're going to have to go through the painful process of trial and error to learn how to efficiently and effectively farm. If you do learn how to farm, though, the yield will change, and your land will be better used to grow corn than to graze cattle. Thus, the price of corn will drop as the supply goes up, and the price of meat will go up as the relative supply goes down. Again, this is meant to make it clear that the price of agricultural goods is based not on the good itself, but rather on its overall supply in the marketplace. And so, the use of land is based on what can provide the adequate supply. He also notes an exception to this. When, when population numbers get so high as to require the importation of food, he says, quote, Particular circumstances have sometimes rendered some countries so populous that the whole territory, like the lands in the neighborhood of a great town, has not been sufficient to produce both the grass and the corn necessary for the subsistence of their inhabitants. Their lands, therefore, have been principally employed in the production of grass, the more bulky commodity, and which cannot be so easily brought from a great distance. The corn, the food of the great body of the people, has been chiefly imported from foreign countries. Holland is at present in this situation, and a considerable part of ancient Italy seems to have been so during the prosperity of the Romans. To feed well, old Cato said, as we are told by Cicero, was the first and most profitable thing in the management of a private estate. To feed tolerably well, the second, and to feed ill, the third. To plow, he ranked only in the fourth place of profit and advantage. Tillage, indeed, in that part of ancient Italy, which lay in the neighborhood of Rome, must have been very much discouraged by the distributions of corn, which were frequently made to the people, either gratuitously or at a very low price. The corn was brought from the conquered provinces, of which several, instead of taxes, were obliged to furnish a tenth part of their produce, as at a stated price, about 
sixpence a peck to the Republic. The low price at which this corn was distributed to the people must necessarily have sunk the price of what could be brought to the Roman market from Latium, or the ancient territory of Rome, and must have discouraged its cultivation in that country. There are a couple of pages where he then compares prices of meat from the last hundred years, and it's these kinds of tangents where, where I find it hard to blame anyone who gives up on reading this book. What he's working up to, though, through, through all of this, is the fact that based on yields, and, and, and this is what I mentioned before about wanting to find the grounding point to, to make all other comparisons meaningful, so based on yields, all land value, and thus all rents, are based on those of corn land or, or wheat land. Quote, In all great countries, the greater part of the cultivated food for cattle, the rent and profit of these, of these regulate the rent and profit of all other cultivated land. If any particular produce afforded less, the land would soon be turned into corn or pasture, and if any afforded more, some part of the lands in corn or pasture would soon be turned to that produce. Then, going on to explore some, some interesting variations, Smith gets uh, uh, onto uh, vineyards, as it was considered at the time that uh, vineyards were more valuable and more profitable than, than most other kinds of agriculture. Uh, where this becomes interesting is in the fact that, that Smith observes that in France, uh, laws had been put into place to preserve the profits of their vineyards by prohibiting the creation of any new vineyards. Now, this law, enacted in 1731, was, on its face, meant to preserve the quality and renown of French wine. In order to establish a new vineyard, one would have to get approval from the king after a very lengthy inspection of the land to certify that it was fit to grow the grapes that would become French wine. In reality, all this served to do was to create an artificial supply shortage. People wanted French wine, and that demand drove prices high enough that it would motivate French farmers to set aside part of their farmland to become vineyards. And had they been allowed to do so, the extra supply would have met the demand and the price would have gone down. Well, the established vineyards were enjoying the higher prices that their wines were fetching without having to do any additional work. So to prevent the influx of additional supply, they petitioned the king to, to limit who could enter the market. Smith says, quote, It seems at the same time, however, to indicate another opinion, that this superior profit can last no longer than the laws which at present restrain the free cultivation of the vine. In 1731, they obtained an order of council prohibiting both the planting of new vineyards and the renewal of those old ones, of which the cultivation had been interrupted for two years, without a particular permission from the king to be granted only in the consequence of an, in, of an information from the intendant of the province, certifying that he had examined the land, and that it was incapable of any other culture. The pretense of this order was the scarcity of corn and pasture, and the superabundance of wine. But had this superabundance been real, it would, without any order of the council, have effectually prevented the plantation of new vineyards by reducing the profits of this species of cultivation below their natural proportion to those of corn and pasture. 
With regard to the supposed scarcity of corn occasioned by the multiplication of vineyards, corn is nowhere in France more carefully cultivated than in the wine provinces, where the land is fit for producing it, and in Burgundy, Guinea, and upon uh, Languedoc. The numerous hands employed in the one species of cultivation necessarily encourage the other, by affording a ready market for its produce. To diminish the number of those who are capable of paying for it is surely a most unpromising expedient for the encouraging the cultivation of corn. It is like the policy which would promote agriculture by discouraging manufacturers. And of course, to the argument that allowing anyone to grow grapes would somehow lead to a lot of bad wine, we already know that the market would sort that kind of thing out with the bad wines not being purchased, thus forcing the farmers making them to convert their land back to something besides vineyards. Smith makes a good point about the the direction of the quality and profits here. He says, quote, Whatever it be, the greater part of it goes to the rent of the landlord. For though such vineyards are in general more carefully cultivated than most others, the high price of the wine seems to be not so much the effect as the cause of careful cultivation. He then wraps up this section focused on, on comparing agriculture uh, to agriculture with, with this. Uh, he says, quote, It is in this manner that the rent of cultivated land of the greater part of other cultivated land, no particular produce can long afford less because the land would immediately be turned to another use. And if any particular produce commonly affords more, it is because the quantity of land which can be fitted for it is too small to supply the effectual demand. In Europe, corn is the principal produce of land which serves immediately for human food. Except in particular situations, therefore, the rent of corn land regulates in Europe that of all other cultivated lands. Britain need envy neither the vineyards of France nor the olive plantations of Italy. Except in particular situations, the value of these is regulated by that of corn, in which the fertility of Britain is not much inferior to either of those uh, two countries. If in any country the common and favorite vegetable food of the people should be drawn from a plant of which the most common land, with the same or nearly the same culture, produced a much greater quantity than the most fertile does of corn, the rent of the landlord, or the surplus quantity of the food, which would remain to him after paying the labor and replacing the stock of the farmer together with its ordinary profits, would necessarily be much greater. Whatever was the rate at which labor was commonly maintained in that country, this greater surplus could always maintain a greater quantity of it and consequently enabled the landlord to purchase or command a greater quantity of it. The real value of his rent, his real power and authority, his command of the necessities and conveniences of life with which the labor of other people could supply him would necessarily be much greater. But now, of course, we have to ask, well, what about land that doesn't necessarily generate a rent to the landowner? What about things other than agriculture? Uh, well, Smith's got an answer for that in, in part two of the chapter. Uh, along with food, uh, shelter is down at the, the very base of Maslow's hierarchy. 
However, the basic components of shelter, the, the crops that can be made into clothes and the, the materials used in building houses, don't function the same way as crops do when it comes to dictating the, the, value, the value of land and thus the value of rent. Uh, quote, after food, clothing and lodging are the two great wants of mankind. Land in its original rude state can afford the materials of clothing and lodging to a much greater number of the people than it can feed. In its improved state, it can sometimes feed a greater number of people that it can, than it can supply with those materials, at least in the way in which that we require them and are willing to pay for them. In the one state, therefore, there is always a superabundance of those materials, which are frequently, upon that account, of little or no value. In the other, there is often a scarcity, which necessarily augments their value. In the one state, a great part of them is thrown away as useless, and the price of what is used is considered as equal only to the labor and expense of fitting it for use, and can therefore afford no rent to the landlord. In the other, they are all made use of, and there is frequently a demand for more than can be had. Somebody is always willing to give more money for every part of them than what is sufficient to pay the expense of bringing them to market. Their price, therefore, can always afford some rent to the landlord. So, when we're dealing with these kinds of materials, the, the ability to get a rent for the land... Where, where they exist depends a lot on their abundance and, and the demand and, and where in the process of development the society is, is currently at. In a fairly untouched area, uh, the landowner may allow people to come and cut down trees just to, get, just to get them out of the way. Clearing the trees frees up that area to be used as farmland. And so the landowner may feel that people cutting down those trees is actually doing them a favor. Those trees then get turned into lumber and are used to build houses. But, but as demand for lodging goes up, the value of the trees uh, for lumber may exceed the profits from the yield of, of a corn crop. And suddenly the landowner may see an opportunity to make money by charging a rent on the cutting of trees on that land. The same is true with stones. Uh, at first, the landowner may be happy to have people come and rid him of the stones on his property. But while society hits a, a, a point where the demand for such materials are high enough, the dynamic will shift, and the landowner will start to, to angle to, to make more money off the cultivation of those materials. Uh, Smith gets into this by saying, quote, when the materials of lodging are so superabundant, the part made use of is worth only the labor and expense for fitting it for that use. It affords no rent to the landlord, who generally grants the use of it to whoever takes the trouble of asking for it. The demand of wealthier nations, however, sometimes enables him to get a rent for it. The paving of the streets of London has enabled the owners of some barren rocks on the coast of Scotland to draw rent from what never afforded any before. The woods of Norway and the coasts of the Baltic find a market in, the, in many parts of Great Britain, which they could not find at home and thereby afford some rent to their properties. 
Now, because we know that nothing exists in a vacuum in the economy, the demand, and, and thus the price of these materials, is directly linked then to the supply of food. Quote, Countries are populous not in proportion to the number of people whom their produce can clothe and lodge, but in proportion to that of those whom it can feed. When food is provided, it is easy to find the necessary clothing and lodging. But though these are at hand, it may often be difficult to find food. In some parts, even of the British uh, dominions, what is called a house may be built by one day's labor of one man. The simplest species of clothing, the skins of animals, require somewhat more labor to dress and prepare them for use. They do not, however, require a great deal. Among savage and barbarous nations, a hundredth or little more than a hundredth part of the labor of the whole year will be sufficient to provide them with such clothing and lodging as satisfy the greater part of the people. All the other ninety-nine parts are frequently no more than enough to provide them with food. But when, by the improvement and cultivation of the land, the labor of one family can provide food for two, the labor of half the society becomes sufficient to provide food for the whole. The other half, therefore, or at least the greater part of them, can be employed in providing other things, or in satisfying the other wants and fancies of mankind. Smith further expands this into the divide between rich and poor. He mentions that, generally speaking, there's no great difference in demand for food between rich people and poor people. We, we all need about the same amount of food to sustain us. And there's nothing that comes with being rich that suddenly makes you want to eat remarkably more. You may want different kinds of food, you may, but you're not going to go from eating three meals a day to 30 meals a day just because you have more money. Instead, you're going to use that money to buy more things, a bigger house, more furniture, luxuries, various entertainments, and that's where the increased demand for other raw materials comes from. That is uh, all to further reiterate his point that food is the constant by which demand for all other items can be measured. Once there's an adequate supply of food, then, then demand will increase for other things, which will in turn create a demand for labor to make those things, which will then provide more people with adequate wages to purchase things other than basic life subsistence, and so on. Quote, Food is in this manner not only the original source of rent, but every other part of the produce of land which afterwards affords rent, derives that part of its value from the improvement of the power of labor in producing food by means of the improvement and cultivation of land. This then gets us into the potential for rent when it comes to mining. Now, Smith's contention here is that mining, specifically for coal, isn't profitable enough to warrant a rent on the land being mined. Essentially, the the returns on coal mining are so little as to cover only the wages and labor and to provide the necessary profits to the holders of stock that there's nothing left over. And so the rent of, of land for, for this kind of mining is basically zero. Now, this situation has changed somewhat since the late 18th century, as at the time, coal was used exclusively as a heat source and in fact had, according to Smith, a, a more preferred substitute in wood. 
Uh, Smith mentioned several times that wood is seen as preferable to coal for heating because burning coal leaves a lot of residue. So from his time, if the price of coal were high enough to warrant a rent of the land it's being mined on, then that higher price would cause people to substitute away to wood, which they'd rather use anyway, and force the price of coal back down. Things are, of course, different today, as coal is not just used as a heat source, but primarily used now as a fuel for generating electricity, uh, which we all have a fairly low elasticity of demand for. Our, our modern world doesn't really work without electricity, so we're willing to take and, and, and to pay for whatever fuel gets us a constant flow of electricity, which, of course, allows the price to rise to a point where there might be significantly more left over to cover a rent of the land. Where I think this whole bit about mining really gets interesting, though, is when Smith transitions from coal to the mining of precious metals. And we get a little glimpse into the nature of a global economy and the effects that it can have on local markets. Quote, That of a metallic mine depends more upon its fertility and less upon its situation. The coarse, and still more the precious metals, when separated from the ore, are so valuable that they can generally bear the expense of very long land and of the most distant sea carriage. Their market is not confined to the countries in the neighborhood of the mine, but extends to the whole world. The copper of Japan makes an article of commerce in Europe, the iron of Spain in that of Chile and Peru. The silver of Peru finds its way not only to Europe, but from Europe to China. The price of coals in Westmoreland or Shropshire can have little effect on their price in Newcastle, and their price in the Lyons can have none at all. The productions of such distant coal mines can never be brought into competition with one another, but the productions of the most distant metallic mines frequently may, and in fact commonly are. The price, therefore, of the coarse and still more that of the precious metals at the most fertile mines in the world must necessarily more or less affect their price at every other in it. The price of copper in Japan must have some influence upon its price at the copper mines in Europe. The price of silver in Peru, or the quantity either of labor or of other goods which it will produce there, must have some influence on its price, not only at the silver mines of Europe, but all, uh, at those in China. After the discovery of the mines of Peru, the silver mines of Europe were, the greater part of them, abandoned. The value of silver was so much reduced that their produce could no longer pay the expense of working them, or replace with, with a profit the food, clothes, lodging, and other necess necessaries which were consumed in that operation. This was the case, too, with the mines of Cuba and San Domingo and even with the ancient mines of Peru after the discovery of those of Pot Potosi. The price of every metal at every mine, therefore, being regulated in some measure by its price at the most fertile mine in the world that is actually wrought, it can, at the greater part of mines, do very little more than pay the expense of working and can seldom afford a very high rent to the landowner. Rent, accordingly, seems at the greater part of mines to have but a small share in the price of the coarse and still smaller in that of the precious metals. 
Labor and profit make up the greater part of both. And this is something that, that I find really interesting. So, <clears throat> as Smith points out, when a mine of any kind is providing its output uh, only to the local area, then the price for that output uh, is regulated by the mine itself and the local demand. But when you've got an output that is both in demand everywhere, like silver or gold, and sells at a high enough price so as to make transportation of the good to other markets viable, and is durable enough to be transported over those long distances, you wind up entering a new dynamic where the price of that good isn't regulated locally, but globally. There might be mines that would be extremely profitable based on their output and the effective demand of the local area that aren't because mines halfway around the world are pushing out so much more ore and that ore is being transported around the world and, and, and it drops the global price to a point where that first mine simply isn't profitable. Smith is getting into an idea that is, has shaped the ec economic thought throughout the 20th and 21st century here, that as barriers to trade decrease, the market for every product becomes governed on a global level rather than a local one. In times past, my selection of produce was limited to what could get to my local market without rotting. Wheat is more practical for long storage, so that could come from anywhere, but potatoes will rot over a long enough period of time, and as will you know, most fruits and vegetables. But as we've improved our ability to rapidly transport things, my potatoes now come from Idaho, or at least that's what it says on the bag. My lettuce comes from Mexico, and I get my strawberries in the middle of winter because they're coming from Brazil. This expands my, my options as a consumer, but it then takes the whole market for, for anything and makes it a global market. And we've touched on this before, that there are advantages to this broader setup and disadvantages, though those disadvantages are largely only exist if people are unwilling to adapt to the new circumstances. It just, it, it blows my mind a bit that Smith sitting there in the late 1700s was able to see based on silver mines that this kind of thing existed and might be worth taking note of. Now, I'm going to cut it off there because we're about to enter into Smith's digression on silver. And of course, only Smith could call a 100 page section of his book merely a digression rather than simply declaring it a whole additional chapter. But hey, we should be pretty used to that by now. Next week, uh, or next time, we will pick up on that digression, uh, and I will be doing a fair amount of summarizing because uh, Smith gets into some pretty granular detail here. Uh, it's got some points that are, are very much worth noting, but I, I'm not going to force you to sit through the year-by-year -year shifts in silver prices. Uh, as always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, come out and join the Facebook group. Uh, you can search it by uh, title in Facebook or simply click on the link in the show notes uh, for this episode. We've been getting a few new members lately and the uh, conversations have been pretty great. Uh, if you are not a Facebook user, you can always email me directly at, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. 
uh, all one word, no punctuation. Uh, I've had a couple people hit me up through email and it's happy to respond to their questions and comments. Thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, if you're liking what you hear, please take a minute and throw me that five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks to all of you who have taken the time to drop a rating. Uh, this podcast uh, now, because of those ratings, typically comes up uh, at, at or near the top of uh, the choices when you search economics in iTunes podcasts. But uh, let's keep that up. Also, feel free to leave a comment in your review. And with that, thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back uh, next week with another topic episode. And then again in two weeks for Adam Smith's Digression on Silver. 200 pages in, uh, puts us at about 19% of the way through the, the book. So, hey, awesome. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. As a karate expert, I will not talk about anyone up here because our children can't afford to live anywhere. Nowhere. There's nowhere to go. Once again, why? You said it. The rent is too damn high.